1: to the Q1 2021 AGF Management Limited Earnings Conference call. My name is Adrienne, and I'll be your operator for today's call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we'll have a question-and-answer session. During the question-and-answer session, if you have a question, please press star, then one on your touch-tone phone. Please note this conference is being recorded. I'll now turn the call over to Adrienne Basaraba. Ms. Basaraba, you may begin.
2: Thank you, operator, and good morning, everyone. I'm Adrian Basaraba, Senior Vice President and Chief Financial Officer of AGF Management Limited. Today, we will be discussing the financial results for the first quarter of fiscal 2021. Slides supporting today's call and webcast can be found in the Investor Relations section of AGF.com. Also speaking on the call today will be Kevin McCree, Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Officer. For the question and answer period with investment analysts following the presentation, Judy Goldring, President and Head of Global Distribution will also be available to address questions. Turning to slide four, provide an agenda for today's call. We will discuss the highlights of Q1 2021, provide an update on the key segments of our business, review our financial results, discuss our capital and liquidity position, and finally close by outlining our focus for the remainder of 2021. After the prepared remarks, we'll be happy to take questions. With that, I'll turn the call over to Kevin.
3: Thank you, Adrian, and thank you, everyone, for joining us today. March marks the one-year anniversary of the pandemic. Over the past year, we have prioritized the health of our employees and supported our clients in navigating these uncertain markets by providing expert insights and thought leadership. We also made effective use of technology and accelerated our digital transformation to position AGF for success. A year later, we are seeing the results of our efforts, with all lines of business showing positive momentum that has carried beyond Q1. I'll begin with some highlights. AUM reached almost $40 billion at the end of Q1, our highest level in the past five years. Our mutual fund business reported gross sales of $1 billion, which is almost double the first quarter of last year. Net sales in Q1 were $385 million. This marks our best quarter of mutual fund flows in over a decade. Our institutional business onboarded two clients in the past quarter and has a robust pipeline of prospects. Investment performance has remained strong, which supports a continuation of our sales trajectory. A number of our global and fixed income strategies continue to outperform versus their peers. We have a strong balance sheet and are well positioned to pursue growth initiatives that will generate stable sources of earnings and cash flow. Along those lines, we are committed to building our private alternatives business. As part of our extended partnership with SAF group, We have begun fundraising for the launch of a direct lending private credit strategy in Canada. We expect to see the offering and complete the first close in early Q3. And the board confirmed a quarterly dividend of $0.08 per share for the first quarter. While we are pleased with the overall business momentum, this rapid growth has had a temporary short-term impact on our financial results. Variable compensation costs were higher this quarter due to our strong sales, investment performance, and AGF's rising share price. Similarly, Deferred Selling Commissions, or DSC, which are paid upfront to advisors, were higher this quarter. Although DSC as a percentage of our total mutual fund growth sales has fallen significantly year over year, it has increased in absolute dollars due to our improved mutual fund sales. It is important to note these short-term impacts are due to growth. We view variable compensation in DSC as upfront investments That will generate higher profits and free cash flow over the long term. When you look at expenses in Q1 and eliminate timing of certain expenses and compensation related to improved performance, what I'll call core expenses are actually down sequentially and year over year. Looking ahead for our 2022 fiscal year, we will reset organic growth targets. If similar levels of sales persist, the cost of variable compensation should be lower. Starting on slide 6, we will provide updates on our business performance. On this slide, we break down our total AUM in the categories disclosed in our MD&A and show comparisons to the prior year. Mutual fund AUM increased by 16%. I'll provide more color on our mutual fund business in a moment. Institutional, sub-advisory, and ETF AUM decreased compared to prior year, mainly due to the redemptions that we disclosed in previous quarters. As indicated on our previous call, we onboarded two institutional clients during q one. One is a small institutional mandate that invested in our global sustainable growth equity strategy, which has a stellar track record. The other is a large U.S. institution that selected three of our global and U.S. equity strategies for its SMA platforms. While AUM growth for this mandate will occur gradually over time, We are optimistic based on preliminary flows from the first few weeks. We are currently working on onboarding another U.S.-based mandate and hope to confirm this account on our next call. In early March, we also received an allocation of approximately $150 million from an existing strategic partner to our American growth strategy. Given the increased interest we're seeing across multiple strategies and jurisdictions, we are confident about our ability to generate sales within the institutional segment. RFP and RFI activities have also remained strong, which bodes well for future sales. Our private client business continues to demonstrate consistent, steady growth, with AUM increasing 7% year-over-year. Year. Our private alternatives to AUM was $2.7 billion dollars, and we are making solid progress towards our goal of reaching $5 billion by the end of 2022. Turning to slide 7, I'll provide some details on the mutual fund business. The Canadian mutual fund industry had a strong RRSP season, reporting net sales of $40 billion for the first three months ending February 28th of 2021. AGF's mutual fund business reported net sales of $385 million for the quarter which marks our second consecutive quarter of positive net flows. Excluding net flows from institutional clients invested in mutual funds, net sales were $376 million compared to net redemptions of $141 million in Q1 of last year. AGF sales improvement outpaced that of the industry. Gross sales for our long-term funds in Q1 grew at more than twice the rate of the overall industry. We continue to benefit from the trends toward global and U.S. equities, fixed income, and ESG. Furthermore, we are seeing year over year improvements across all channels, IROC, MFDA, and strategic partnerships. In fact, growth for fee-based series outpaced the rest of the mutual fund business. The momentum from the last several months has continued into March, where we have net sales of approximately 200 million up to the March 29th date. Before I return the call back to Adrian, I want to give a quick update on performance. A.G.F. measures mutual fund performance by comparing gross returns before fees relative to peers within the same category, with first percentile being the best possible performance. We target an average percentile ranking versus peers of 50% over one year and 40% over three years. Average percentile rankings over the past one year Improved from 60% at q one of last year to 41% at q one of this year. Average percentile rankings over the past three years remained relatively stable at 53%. With that, I will turn the call back over to Adrian.
2: Thank you, Kevin. Slide 8 reflects a summary of our financial results for the first quarter with sequential quarter and year-over-year comparisons. For ease of comparison, we've included adjusted numbers throughout the remainder of the presentation. EBITDA before commissions for the current quarter, excluding Smith and Williamson, is 26.8 million, 4.8 million lower sequentially. Breaking the, uh, the number down, private alternatives EBITDA was 3.9 million lower. Recall that Q4 was an unusually high because one of our private alternatives funds had a partial monetization. The remaining decline in EBITDA, less than a million dollars, is attributable to higher SGNA, partly offset by increased net revenue due to higher AUM. sg was $48 million, which is $2.7 million higher than Q1 2020, and $4.9 million higher than Q4 2020. Q1 included higher expenses sequentially because of the timing of benefit payments, which are typically recorded in the first quarter of each year. Q1 also included higher variable compensation due to increased sales, investment performance, and AGF's rising share price. But if you eliminate the effects of timing and variable compensation related to improved performance, the remaining expenses in Q1 are lower than both Q4 and Q1 of last year. Diluted earnings per share, excluding Smith and Williamson, was $0.08, which is $0.01 higher than Q1 2020 and $0.11 lower than Q4 2020. When compared to Q4, of the decline is due to uh, lower EBITDA before commissions, which we already explained. And then $0.05 is due to higher DSC, and that's because of higher sales. And we're walking through this this in detail to illustrate that the level of EPS in the quarter is really due to timing of alternatives earnings, timing of expenses, and variable expenses uh, related to accelerating growth. Now, in a moment, I'll... I'll cover our EBITDA margin and basis points for our investment management business, which is flat to Q1 compared to the trailing 12 months. And that's in a quarter where we experienced significant new business strain. Looking forward, I'll address SG&A guidance. At the beginning of the year, we estimated $180 million for 2021. At the time, while this guidance assumed a return to net sales for a retail organization, it did not assume a further acceleration in sales or investment performance. During the first quarter, we've seen a dramatic shift in our business trajectory. Retail mutual fund gross sales hit a billion dollars, which is an improvement of 84% year-over-year and a 59% improvement uh, compared to Q4. We also recorded retail mutual fund net sales of $376 million. This was our strongest quarter of mutual fund flows in over a decade, and this trend has continued into late March, with net sales of approximately $200 million for the month as of March 29th. With this in mind, we believe that our 2021 SGA will land between $185 million and $190 million for the year, which assumes mutual fund sales continue at its current trajectory while taking into account seasonality. We're happy to pay for success-based performance and our ability to significantly reduce our expense base over the past few years has given us this flexibility to fund our rapid growth. While sales commissions and DSC paid on these sales are expensed immediately and not capitalized, we will earn revenue on these sales over a much longer period, generally seven years. It's important to note that while growth will create short-term strain on our financial results, it will ultimately drive higher value for our shareholders. When we begin our strategic planning process for 2022, expense control will be a key theme. And as Kevin mentioned, we reset targets each year. So, to the extent that mutual fund sales are at a similar level next year, we would expect lower amounts of related variable compensation. We'll continue to take a thoughtful and disciplined approach with our SGA and find efficiencies while continuing to invest in growth areas. Turning to slide nine, I'll walk through the yield in our business in terms of basis points. The slide shows our revenue, operating expenses, and EBITDA before commissions uh, as a percentage of average AUM on the current quarter as well as the trailing 12-month view. Note that AUM and related results from Smith & Williamson, the private wealth business, one-time items, and other income are excluded. Q1 revenue yield is 113 basis points, two basis points higher than the trailing 12 months. As you can see on the slide, the increase is mainly due to a shift towards mutual fund products with relatively higher fees q one sgna a as a percentage of AUM is 53 basis points, one basis point higher compared to the trailing 12 months. This resulted in an EBITDA yield of 25 basis points, which is flat to the trailing 12 months. Again, this is notable given the acceleration of growth in the quarter and related expenses. Turning to slide 10, I'll discuss free cash flow and capital uses. This slide represents the last five quarters of consolidated free cash flow on a trailing 12-month basis as shown by the orange bars on the chart. The black line represents the percentage of free cash flow that was paid out of the dividend. Our trailing 12-month free cash flow was $42 million, and our dividend payout ratio was 57%. Our remaining capital commitment to the private alternatives business is $70 million. Capital commitments may be funded from excess free cash flow, but keep in mind there will also be further recycling of capital as monetizations occur which will help to fund future commitments. As of February the 28th, we have cash of $60 million, short and long-term investments of almost $160 million, and no debt. We also have our credit facility available, which provides credit to a maximum of 150 million. While we currently have no debt, we're comfortable increasing our, debt, our net debt to EBITDA up to around 1.5 times, should the right opportunities arise. We plan to deploy our capital in a balanced way, including returning capital to shareholders and investing in areas of growth, such as our private alternatives business. Redeploying this excess capital to generate recurring earnings is a key strategic priority. Turning to slide 11, I'll turn it to Kevin to wrap up today's call. Thanks,
3: Adrian. Q1 was a solid quarter. We recorded the best quarter of mutual fund sales in over a decade with improvements coming across all channels, IROC, MFDA, and strategic partners. Our institutional business has a robust pipeline of prospects. Investment performance has remained strong, which supports our sales momentum. Our private alternatives business continue to make progress towards our goal of reaching $5 billion in AUM. We are focused on building on the momentum from the past few quarters and creating value for our shareholders over the long term. Along those lines, I'd like to reiterate our strategic priorities, which are to deliver consistent and repeatable investment performance, as well as drive the organization to sustainable net inflows. At the same time, redeploy the excess capital to generate recurring earnings, and we will position the firm to reach $5 billion in alternatives by 2022. In all of this, we'll meet our revised expense guidance while continuing to invest in key growth areas. I want to thank everyone on the AGF team for all of their hard work in these challenging times. We will now take your questions.
1: Thank you. We will now begin the question and answer session. If you have a question, please press star, then one on your touchtone phone. If you wish to be removed from the queue, please press the pound sign or the hash key. If you're using speakerphone, you may need to pick up the handset first before pressing the numbers. Once again, if you have a question, please press star, then one on your touch-tone phone. And our first question comes from Gary Ho from DeHardins Capital. Your line is open.
0: Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.
4: Thanks. Good morning. Um, maybe for Adrian, the first one, um, seeing the solid sales momentum that you guys are experiencing, and then you also revised your SGNA and a target um, at 185 to 190. Can you can you can you walk me through what you're assuming in those uh, in those revised targets? Is it similar growth of kind of that mid-80% in terms of growth sales, are, is it, are you trendlining that for the rest of the, the year to get to that, uh, those numbers?
2: Yeah, Gary, it's Adrian. Thanks a lot for the question. Yeah, maybe I should just uh, step back and give a little bit of color in terms of, you know, why the guidance changed. Because you know that back on January the 27th, we said $180 million uh, of sg for 2021. And now we're saying 185 to 190 and so. Maybe will to start by sharing with you kind of what we looked at when we updated the guidance so you know back in January when we gave you the guidance, net sales in that month were about eighty seven million and so we saw a pretty significant acceleration in the business since then. February, our net sales were two hundred and thirty one million and March I think you know if I had to estimate where we end up at the end of the month it's probably closer to two twenty five than the two hundred that we we talked about uh, earlier uh, just that's just an estimate and you know as you know Gary our sales plans are variable so higher sales means higher sales compensation um, but sales compensation isn't the only reason why we change the guidance and it's not the only thing we look at when we do the estimate right so markets uh, since January the 27th are up 6 percent so higher markets along with the higher sales drives higher AUM Higher AUM drives higher profits, and higher profits means that we pay out a higher general bonus uh, because it looks like we're going to exceed the targets for the year. Um, In addition, AGF share price is up 16% since January the 27th, and this means additional share-based compensation because certain of our plans are cash settled. We are going to look at uh, stock settling some of these plans to remove this volatility going forward. but. you know, just to give you another, some more insight into kind of what we look at when we estimate our guides for the year, you know that that's a change. The stock price being up sixteen percent, um, and then investment performance also has gotten better uh, in the last couple of months. We look at strategies like Global Select, American Growth, Global Sustainable Equity, Global Convertible Bond, and there's actually a few others that are all, you know, top five, top five percentile on a one year basis. Um, so that drives some some additional. Uh, performance compensation as well. So to answer your question specifically, Gary, we can't really give you a formula for 2021 because I think as I've hopefully demonstrated there, there's just so many factors that drive expenses, and that's why we we have to give you a range. Uh, but please note that you know all the things that we mentioned here are positive for long-term value, um, and and they and they do sort of you know drive expenses. So what I would encourage you to do is just look at kind of the year-to-date. Um, sales that we've achieved right you you know that in the first five months we've got 1.4 billion of gross 600 million of net there is a little bit of seasonality uh, but we'll leave it to you to sort of to sort of look at that Um, and then and then you know if you want to take the conversation even further from expenses if you look at this quarter our EPS got impacted by higher deferred selling commissions right so they were like 16 cents in the quarter But, but again we're happy to pay uh, deferred sales commissions on new sales and new and increasing sales and, and Maybe I'll just stop and apologize here for the long answer But let me just finish by saying you know when you look at especially the DSC and its impact on EPS It really underscores the need to look at EBITDA before commissions uh, for a company like AGF that's experiencing very high rates of organic growth you, you have to look past just the headline EPS right so focusing only on EPS you're going to miss the fact that you know, results can be negatively impacted by increasing sales momentum, but that's a positive for value creation. I don't know if yep. Kevin or Judy you want to... Hey, uh, hey, Gary. It's Kevin. Let
3: me add. Uh, you know, when we sat there in January, we knew that... And we've been talking um, the last couple of quarters that what we saw at the turn last year at the bottom in March was that month over month we were seeing pretty good progression. And, and if we look at Q4, we saw about a third percent, you know, 33% odd jump from Q4 the prior year. And so I think when we sat with you guys at the end of January, um, we felt pretty good at the forecast. And then, as I said, as well, as Adrian just said, the numbers came in, uh, have been coming in. momentum of the sales side picked up dramatically and it stayed with us in March. Uh, maybe Judy in a minute can touch on the seasonality that may come through with that. Um, but nonetheless, you know, I look back at that in a year of COVID, and we're sitting here a year later. In that you know we're sitting four months into our fiscal year and we've got 600 million net and we've done over a billion on the growth side in the first quarter, you know I I I get the short-term pain on the expense side. I, I think we take that all day long to embed the long-term revenues uh, for the next six seven years that those sales bring in, uh, you know and again to the extent that that this continues at this pace, we'll have to moderate this um, guidance a bit. But I think we're comfortable that we've been conservative about where we think we're headed on this for now. But uh, you know I. I get the short-term problem, but it's it's short-term given the fact that the long-term benefits here on the revenue side, uh, I think, way outweigh it from my perspective. Okay, perfect. And then
4: um, maybe second question just on the institutional side, Um, you know, what were the net flows in the quarter? And uh, and Kevin, I think you mentioned a few um, uh, institutional wins. Just wondering kind of how the pipeline looks when you look out over the next couple of quarters. Yeah, Judy, do you want to take that? Yeah, I'll start. I
5: mean, um, certainly what we've seen is a a really marked increase in the number of RFPs and RFI activity uh, over the last couple of quarters, Uh, seeing some great momentum in the United States particularly, um, focused in around our GSG mandate, sorry, global sustainable mandate, and uh, some of the global and emerging market strategies. Um, And so overall, what we're seeing is a positive pipeline of about 200 million going forward, yeah, and Gary, we had some redemptions come out that we, tar-
3: uh, we had told you about, those cleared. We had a couple that actually um, pulled back because performance um, on one of our value tilted strategies improved dramatically. Um, now, we don't know if that's a permanent pause, but you know the combination of that performance improving and the pause on that redemption plus those flows gives us a pretty good positive pipeline as we move into Q2. Okay.
4: And the last question, uh, maybe also for, for Judy, actually, just on the DSC front, um, you know, we're just a little bit over a year away from the banning. Uh, have you had discussions with your strategic partner in terms of transitioning to other fund types? Do you expect higher sales kind of before the DSC ban, um, as some of these advisors might take advantage of the higher kind of upfront commissions here?
5: You know, what we're doing is making sure we're working with our partners to help Transition whichever way they're moving towards uh, the mutual fund dealers side of the business Ten some of them are still using the DSC. So we are ensuring we have uh, vehicle um, Opportunity sorry pricing advantages in whichever vehicle they might want to use in whichever way they want to transition their business so we are just um, Making sure we're working closely with them to provide the support that they need if they change the business model
2: Yeah, and I'll just I'll just add there Gary that you know in 2020 uh, DSC sales as a percentage of all gross sales was about 40%. And uh, in Q1, we were sitting at about 33%. Um, a lot of the growth is uh, coming from IROC channels and kind of non-NFDA, just to give you a little bit more color on, on uh, what's happening with DSC. Okay. Perfect. Uh,
4: that's it for me. Thank you.
1: And our next question comes through Nick. Creeby from CIBC Capital Markets, your line is open.
6: Yeah, thanks. Um, Just on the topic of retail fund sales, would you characterize the momentum you're experiencing on the gross sales side as fairly broad-based across the product lineup? And I I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, given the above-average sales result, I'm just wondering if there are any notable mixed changes that we should be aware of that could have an impact on, uh, say, the weighted average fee rate
5: Well, we have been, um, first of all, if I can go back, I mean, the reality is we've been working towards this momentum for quite a while by building out our brand, maintaining good, strong relationships, and, of course, what we've seen is some great performance. And so we've been fortunate because the product lineup is very broad in terms of what is selling across global equity, U.S. equities, U.S. small, mid-cap, fixed income, seen great traction, and uh, our global sustainable and ESG uh, portfolios are also uh, phenomenal performance and, again, great traction. And then we're fortunate as well as we've been focused on really uh, broadening out our, our reach into IROC. We're seeing uh, growth in that channel. MFDA is steady, and of course, we've got some strong strategic partnerships that we continue to foster and, and nurture. So, um, uh, you know, Adrian, I, you might want to speak, or, or Kevin, you want to speak to the mix.
3: Yeah. No. Nick, yeah, it's Kevin. Um, So mix has been, as Judy said, has been pretty broad. So on the fixed income side, it's been total return bond, which is sort of a um, going anywhere bond uh, fund, so it's shorter duration. Um, Obviously, when rates back up like this, it does really well. People look for things like that. Global converts, gives you kind of a different yield. But then it's really been on the equity side. It's been global, uh, global concentrated, global select, uh, our ESG product, which is global, have all done well. So the mix shift, it's, it's it's really away from Maybe other other players and other things into some more discrete and differentiated products that we are in that lineup. But all of them, the breadth of what's uh, working is pretty good for us, as well as the channel breadth that we're seeing.
6: Okay, that's helpful. Um, and then back on the DSC topic, I think you know you pointed out how DSC fund sales have declined over the past year as a proportion of gross retail fund sales. So is it reasonable to expect a gradual tapering in DSC fund sales into mid-next year when the regulatory changes take effect as opposed to, you know, more of an abrupt change in sales practices on on uh, June 1st or whatever the date is?
3: Yeah, Nick, I'll take that first and maybe hand it to Judy. You know, we have, uh, as we said, by channel, um, believe it or not, you know, we're seeing some of the largest growth coming out of the, you know, the non DSC, as you'd expect, so it's IROC, um, and these are significant jumps in in, in, in channel growth for those. So we would continue to expect the tapering of that as those other channels pick up and as other partners start to move their uh, business model toward the June 22 uh, regulatory date. So combination of uh, some of our strategies in these other channels, accelerating those channels, at the same time our partners start to shift their business model. So you're absolutely right on the taper.
5: Yeah, and okay. I, I think just to, yeah, I mean, same thing. I mean, it's just really clients are responding. I mean, it's out there. There's no hiding from the change in regulation, and so business models have to uh, shift with it. And as I say, we're having conversations uh, with our partners along those lines. Okay,
6: and um, last question for me. Just I, I would expect over time that the growth and expansion of managed assets in your ETF suite should outpace the traditional mutual fund lineup. Can you, can you give us a sense for the scale of the ETF business today in, in AUM and is there a point where you would consider breaking out some of those smaller categories separately from a, from a reporting perspective to get a more uh, comprehensive look at the sales performance of some of those other product categories?
3: Uh, yeah, Nick, I'll take the first part of that. Um, what we've seen at the industry level, believe it or not, in uh, I think it was January as well as February, we saw fund sales outpace ETF sales. Uh, In the industry. Part of that is an industry phenomenon of what's uh, been driving some of the passive flows here, which are um, just cap weighted indices. uh, Whereas people are looking at maybe the five or six names that make up 25 to 30 percent of that index and saying, Do I want to own this in this kind of a shift? Um, So you've seen uh, some benefit back to active management and certainly some have come back into the fund complexes. And that's an industry phenomenon, not just ours. Um, And then in terms of just uh, our sizing over ETFs were about 1.3 billion today. Um, you know, we expect that to grow to probably 5 billion over the next several years or so. Um, but that at that point, um, again, we're moving to a more vehicle-agnostic world where we look at a client or an advisor and say, we're indifferent if you choose a fund from us, an F-series, an ETF from us, uh, or an SMA potentially. So we're trying to get to a place where the wrapper becomes indifferent to our end advisor. So you need to have all three SMAs, ETFs, and, and mutual funds, and you can see from month to month, uh, advisor preferences obviously will shift. Yeah.
6: Okay. All right, that's it for me. Thanks very much.
1: And our next question comes from Graham Riding from TD Securities. Your line is open.
2: Hi, I'm just. Um, I'm interested. You made a comment about sort of a, sh- a shifting. Uh, Sort of mix in your gross sales. Could you give us some context of, from a channel perspective, how much of your mutual fund sales are coming from IROC versus MFDA versus strategic partners, perhaps in the quarter, and how that would compare to last year or, or you know, your traditional mix. Um,
3: you know, Adrian, I'll take that one. Hey, Graham, it's Kevin. Um, so yeah, but you know, by channels I said, IROC is growing 125% year over year in the quarter. Uh, MFDA, which is grown about 85-ish percent. Um, so again, you know, we see it um, coming from where we have repositioned. Again, we're trying to bring differentiated strategies to IROC uh, Where firms have bigger books, um, looking for differentiated solutions, and obviously that's paying off here, as we've seen the. the mix away from the NFDA, um, still important to us, but the growth coming from IROC in the quarter, uh, certainly the year-over-year year and the quarter-over-quarter.
2: Quarter. Okay, understood. <clears throat> and, um, Judy, I thought you made some reference to pricing advantages when you were talking about, you know, as, as firms are shifting their, their business model away from DSC. What was that in reference to, if I heard correctly? Yeah,
5: no, it wasn't really pricing uh, pricing advantages, it's just more as they shift their business model, they're moving to F-series or to a front-end model, and uh, our focus is to just ensure we've got whatever structure the client is le- you know, looking to have in, in our vehicles and in our products so that we can accommodate their business transition.
2: Understood. And then what does that business transition involve or typically look like? Are the dealers having to um, offset some of the loss compensation for the advisors and, and um, fill the gap somewhat or what does it involve? Uh,
5: you know, I, every dealer is going to be treating it differently. Um, I think a lot have to do some technology investments to, in order to accommodate a F F-series and a front end. Not, not so much front end, but certainly the F-series. And then how they end up choosing to um, adjust on that compensation model is, it's really been different for every dealer.
2: Okay. Um, if I could shift to the uh, private alt side, um, if you if you put it in your MDNA, I think I, I missed it. But the private credit fund, what's the size that you're that you're targeting? Do you know that yet? And and what's the capital commitment from year end to, to get the fund launched?
3: Yeah, maybe I'll I'll start with that. You know, so on the private alt side, we're still tracking to uh, our five billion uh, target for 2022. Um, just to refresh everybody, we've had four funds. Um, you know, our First, uh, on the infrastructure side, we have partnered with uh, Instar AGF, which I think is one of the premier infrastructure now, uh, North American investors uh, in that space. Uh, so, two funds there. Second fund is, is being invested today. And then we've had two credit funds with our credit um, uh, partner, which is SAF Group, which also date back to roughly 2014-ish. Um, and we're working for the third one on that now. And this fund's going to be more of an evergreen fund, uh, uh, Graham, so it won't have a closed-end target to it, uh, if you will. And so we'll pace that launch out over several quarters, but think of it as a fund that will be in the private credit space, but but have a, um, an open-ended and therefore a growing hopefully AUM over time with that. And then on the commitment side, Adrian, maybe can you walk through what you um, see there in terms of our commitments over the next couple of years in the alt space?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So um, the remaining committed capital to the alt platform right now is 70 million. And that includes, you know, 12 or $13 million we figure we'll have to put into to, um, to seed the, uh, the Evergreen Fund. Um, but, you know, if you step back, Greg, we've got no debt. We have $60 million in cash. We've got $140 million in uh, LP investments and alternatives. We could borrow you know, $100 million and you still be at one times debt to EBITDA. So to the extent that any of these uh, alternatives, platforms, or even new on the platform need additional capital, we've we've got the financial wherewithal to do that. Understood, okay, great. Um, I'll re-queue, I'll leave it there. I won't get too greedy, thanks.
1: And just as a reminder to enter the queue, please press star then one on your touchtone phone. And the next question comes to Tom McKinnon from BMO Capital.
7: Yeah, thanks very much. Good morning. Um, uh, just following up on the private alts, it looks like there's about $12 million that was returned uh, from the private alts in the quarter. Uh, is is that correct? And is that uh, kind of be earmarked, I guess, for the, uh, to see the, uh, the Evergreen Fund?
3: Yeah, Tom, that was a monetization of an asset in one of our credit funds, so yes. Um, but in terms of earmarking, we've got, as we said, cash on the balance sheet. We don't look, typically say that, this monetization goes into the replace that seed for that asset, right? And we look look at each fund, fund by fund. And then as we you know look to redeploy the proceeds of SNW, obviously seeding other funds, uh, seeding other partners becomes important as well. So that becomes a longer term plan on that front.
7: Uh, how should we be thinking about the 70 million in commitments then? Is it gonna be coming out of, or maybe just if you can square that with how much is gonna be monetized? Um, and when when are these 70 commitments supposed to be completed by and how much is going to be monetized to help fund those 70 commitments?
3: Yeah, so maybe I'll take that first time and hand it back over to Adrian. Um, So think about a fund's life. It depends on the fund, right? If it's an infrastructure fund, it takes anywhere from two to five years to start to invest that so the capital gets drawn over time. Uh, Along the way, it's probably starting in somewhere years four to seven, you start to monetize those assets so they come back out at you. Uh, a credit fund has a shorter life. If it's a closed-end fund, four to seven years, you start investing that right away, um, typically, and you'll get monetization sooner. So you know, there's a natural ebb and flow of it, uh, and so you know, we think that over time, that gets to five billion, and Adrian, you can back uh, or correct me on this, but I think we have thought about that our total commitments at any given time could be somewhere in the 220-ish range, maybe slightly higher, um, because as you're deploying in new assets each year, you're getting things back coming in the other side, and Adrian not if you have any other thoughts on that?
2: yeah, no, absolutely um, I think the way you think about this is that you know the, the, that seventy million probably gets invested over the next two or three years. The monetizations are are more difficult to um, you know predict, but you know we do have some additional disclosure in uh in our MDNA that kind of goes over. Uh, the money that we put into the alternatives platform, we've effectively, you know, got half of our money back, and we are, you know, trending towards about a 1.3 multiple on invested capital. So, um, so again, it's a, it's been a very positive thing as far as our capital goes. And the last thing I'll say is that even though we've got some excess capital and willing to support the the business, really what we're in this for is recurring management fees and carry, right? So we want to that's the ultimate goal is to earn a higher proportion of management fees uh, relative to the, to the earnings that we're getting from the LPs. Okay, thanks
7: for that. So we, should we think of 70 million commitments over the next two or three years as really just funded by free cash flow and perhaps some debt?
2: Yeah, like as Kevin said, Tom, we don't, we're not really, uh, it's kind of fungible. Um, but absolutely, if you, if you look at the free cash flow that we have in excess over the dividend that, that could potentially be enough to fund 70 million if you take into account monetization so you can think about it that way i, I don't think we'll have to dip into the debt into the, i don't think we'll have to dip into the balance sheet if you consider you know expected monetizations yeah but tom one of the things i would say is you know we do plan
3: on relevering the balance sheet up to an optimal capital structure at some point which we think is one to one and a half times um, but the cash flow will be increasing along the way too as uh, as sales momentum. Continues, and also is the fact that as we get to that June 22 date, DSC dropping off will of improve cash flow significantly. So there's a number of ways that we have um, to put capital back to work. And just you know, to remind people, we you know, the, after the S and W sale, if you think about it, between the paydown and the debt, we still had enough to do um, between the buyback, which was 40 odd million, and dividends last year, probably 70 million of um, basically capital repatriation to our investors. So I think that the balance sheet. Um, it's got plenty of wherewithal to invest in the alt um, business going forward, um, given those dynamics about the core business right now, plus um, some of the ability to re-lever up. So I'm not concerned about the deal by deal or the commitment side right now.
7: So if cash flow is going to improve as a result of you know the the ending of the DSC and the balance sheet, as you say, has the uh, um, Ability to to fund everything needed for your uh, um, your alternatives here. Why are you re-leveraging,
3: Tom? I said we could, and there's an optimal capital oh, okay. structure that someone would want. And so, as we find opportunities to accelerate our growth, we could, and and, and we would take advantage of that.
7: Okay. All right. Thanks.
1: And Our next question comes from Graham Riding from TD Securities. Your line is open.
2: Uh, On the private credit fund, is there any um, thought to make it available to retail? Is that uh, something you're still looking at?
3: Yeah, Graham, um, I'll start first. Maybe Judy or Adrian can add, but yes, that's exactly right. We're thinking about, you know, for all all of our really alternatives, we we think of them now more on a spectrum basis. So more liquid things down for the pure retail base to more private things for our family offices and institutions. And then on private credit, we're working with a structure that allows and probably will allow some liquidity in for our retail and our higher uh, and IROC channel, as well as some of our family office and institutional clients who may be able to tolerate a further lockup. So, yeah, you're absolutely correct that the, the idea is to bring it to a broader audience.
2: Okay, great. And then my last question, if I could, is just, you know, I know you have an option here to aqu- acquire some management contracts from the SAF group. You know, what, what are you monitoring or evaluating, I guess, over the course of the next uh, probably six months now that um, would sort of help you make that decision of whether you want to do something or not?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'll start on hand it to Adrian. I mean, there's an optimal, you know, as you know, in, in capital markets, right, the last day of the option is the most valuable in terms of the exercise date. It works a little bit different, I think, in a private option like this where we're looking at uh, launch, we're looking at pipelines of things, and there will be a date where we um, where we go to make that exercise decision. And um, so maybe I don't, know, Adrian. You, I know you've done some work on this in, in terms of your own uh, thinking, but if you had anything to
2: add to that? No, I think Kevin, what, the way you phrase it is uh, is right on. I mean, we want to utilize the, the the structure we put in place, obviously, which is uh, gives us time. Um, I think if you tie it back to Kevin's last comment, it's obviously a good opportunity because we do have some excess capital, and one of our strategic priorities is to deploy that excess capital to to um, to earn recurring revenue. Okay, great. And What's the total size of their of their AUM across all their funds? Yeah, Graham. Some of that information is. Uh, is not publicly disclosed. And so um, I think okay. until we exercise the option, we'll probably keep that um, keep that private because yep. okay. SAP is a private company at this point. Okay, that's fair. That's it for me. Thank you. And
1: our next question comes from Gary Hoff and De Hardings. Your line is open. Gary, your line is open.
4: Sorry, uh, no, just uh, just on the on the buyback here. Uh, Notice you guys were a little bit quiet in the quarter. Just wondering, uh, kind of what your thoughts are on on that front, looking out.
3: Yeah, hey Gary, Kevin. Um You know we were quiet in the quarter, um, but you know we had just finished off, as I said, the. Uh, 40 million SIB, uh, which was roughly 7 million shares, right? Uh, so we wanted to give some breather on uh, in terms of being uh, so active with it, but we will be back in. Um, we've talked about um, removing some of this um, stock volatility on the on, on the comp side, so you'll see us probably hedge some of that out by buying some of that back in. So we'll be probably back to normal activity. Uh, we certainly have a lot of room on the NCIB as well. So. Got it. Okay,
4: that's helpful. good that's
1: And we have no further questions. So I'll turn the call back over for final remarks.
2: All right, thank you for uh, for joining the, the call today. And uh, look forward to uh, the next call when we review our, our Q2 results. Thank you very much and good day.
1: Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This concludes today's conference call.